0: So I want to invite you this morning to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, and we are going to read verses 16 to 24. And I'm close, and as soon as I get it, I will tell you the page number. All right, page 1844. Most of your Pew Bibles. Words will also be on the screen. This is kind of the tail end of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to be reading beginning at verse 16 and through 24. Paul writes this Be joyful always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, have any of you heard the saying, seen it crocheted on a pillow, seen it on a bumper sticker, seen it on a little cute wall-hanging... Have you ever seen the saying, life is what happens to us while we are making other plans? Nobody? Okay, thank you. I was gonna say, life is what happens to us when we are making other plans. I think that's a pretty profound little saying. I think it's meant as a reminder to live each day to the fullest. And we are to treasure every moment, like from Dead Poets Society, Carpe Diem, seize the day, seize the day. Life happens to us while is a reminder that when it comes down to it, all we can really count on having is right now, today. This moment, because we are not in control necessarily of what happens to us in this life. I mean, today could be the last day, right? We don't know what's going to happen. All we have, all we can really count on is right now, today, this moment. And that's why I sometimes beat myself up. This is also sometimes why I wonder about the behavior of other people as well, but I mean, it's true for me, I'm sure it's true for at least some of you that, that so much of our energy is spent uh, reminiscing in a positive sense or regretting in a negative sense the past. I mean, so much of our time and energy is like remembering uh, different situations we've been in, perhaps carrying around guilt from those, or maybe carrying around um, joy that should have um, worn out long ago. We also spend a lot of time and energy in planning the future, right? You know, it's interesting, scientists will tell you that, um, and it makes sense to us, that when we accomplish something, when we accomplish a task, when we reach a goal, when we hit a milestone, there are chemicals that are released in our body that actually make us feel good, endorphins and and dopamine, right? Like when we accomplish something, we feel good about it. That's That's a chemical reaction in our body as well as a cognitive one. But it's also interesting to know that... When you are planning to accomplish a goal, like let's say that you write down, this is a goal that I want to accomplish. You know what? Some of those same chemicals are released into your body and you actually feel pretty good. And the reason why I mention that is that, you know, you could go through your entire life planning to do great things, never accomplishing one of them, and feel pretty good about yourself. And that's a little bit crazy to me. But, you know, back to this living in the moment business. The reality of life is that most of it is actually lived in what we could call the meantime, right? The meantime could be described as those in-between spaces in life. Uh, you know, we all have big events in our lives, and then, you know, we ha- hit one big event, and, and then we start looking forward to the next one, and, and we have to go through a number of days or weeks or months uh, between times, right? The meanwhile. Yes, it's those in-between spaces of life, which is exactly where we find ourselves most days, Right? I don't have a big event every single day of my life. It's like most of my life is ordinary time. It's going to work. It's preparing meals, visiting family or friends, conversations in the grocery store, caring for aging parents, attending school. The list goes on and on. It's kind of the, the regular life when you're in your routine. In the meantime... Is often when the actual substance of life occurs. I would argue that in many ways, the meantime is the very critical time of our faith. It's the crucible of our faith. Our experiences in everyday life either uh, refine or define our faith. It's how we behave, how we think, how we speak, how we act in the meantime meantime is, is when the power and promises of God come to bear on our, on our daily pursuits and our goals and our desires. Because after all, blessings like hope and joy and possibility and purpose have ways of of kind of emerging and and kind of uh, being formed in the ordinary activities of life. And so, if we don't find ways to enjoy today and make the most of today, then we're going to be forfeiting a lot of opportunities to live our best life. And when I say our best life, our best life according to what God has called us to. And so all that to say that I think 1 Thessalonians 5 serves as kind of an instruction manual for living in the meantime. Or if you'd like me to kind of advertise it a little bit, it is a recipe for waiting well. Now, after those heavy apocalyptic writings from 2 Peter last week, our text for today feels kind of like this this rapid-fire list of commands that, you know, on first glance might not seem to fit exactly into the Advent season. But I do want you to notice that at the end of our reading, there is Paul's reference to the perusure, the second coming of Christ. And so our impression of the text kind of changes quite a bit when we begin with that ending in mind. So this is an Advent text. And in a sense, these commands that are given by Paul are commands that could be read as sort of the the moral imperatives of Advent. And then Paul Paul follows them up with kind of an, an Advent prayer, Advent wish or Advent blessing. And so then, uh, the whole passage ends with this firm assurance that that the God who fulfilled all of the promises associated with the first Advent is going to fulfill all of his promises having to do with the second Advent or the second coming of Christ as well. In fact, if we focus on the end of verse 18, where it says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, I think our text shows us exactly what God wants of us in this Advent season. And he tells us what he will do to help us achieve his will. And so let's, um, let's look at the commands a little bit individually. The commands begin with a group of three very notable commands, and they're notable because of the universals that are attached to each one. Now, I don't know if you even noticed the universals attached to each one, but it's kind of like you read the commands without the universals, and it says, and you kind of think, okay, yeah, I can manage that. But if you read them with the universals, like it is in Scripture, all of a sudden it becomes uh, quite a tall order. Listen to what I mean. He says rejoice. Okay, yeah, I can, I can do that. No, he says rejoice always. You get what I mean by universals, right? He says pray. I pray. It's great. Pray continually. Okay, pray continually. He says give thanks. Hey, we just had thanksgiving. We all came together and we gave thanks, right? Oh, no, he adds give thanks in all Circumstances. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And when we take those universals seriously, these three little commands become almost unbearably difficult, if not impossible, right? And yet, Paul says that obedience to these commands is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, (laughs) that last phrase, in Christ Jesus, is, of course, the key to our understanding the commands, okay? And, you know, we could actually understand it in a few different ways. Well, maybe not a few different ways, but there's a few different aspects that we could consider here. In Christ Jesus might mean that we are in Christ Jesus in the sense that we live in a different sphere. We live in the world, but it's really Jesus. It's really Jesus who is the the dominant sphere of influence in our lives because we are saved and we are part of God's family. Or it might mean that, that in Christ Jesus... We have a revelation of God's will for our lives, both through the word and through the person of Jesus Christ. And so in Christ Jesus might mean that in Christ Jesus, we have the perfect model of what God is calling for our lives to be like. Or perhaps Paul is talking about the way Christ Jesus Gives us the will and the power to live according to these commands of God. Well, it actually probably means all of those things because Jesus is absolutely central to our joy and to our prayers and to our thanksgiving. Theologian Leon Morris points out that the New Testament is full of exhortations to joyful living. Strangely so, he says, if we consider the outward circumstances of Paul's original audience. Now, we have to remember that particularly in the case of the Thessalonians, because it says so in other portions of the letter, first century believers were often persecuted or at least living a life under the threat of persecution. <clears throat> we know that most of the early Christians lived in less than ideal circumstances. Often they were poor they always worked hard for a living. They had a difficult lot in life. And yet, even so, Paul often and apologetically calls these early Christians to live lives characterized by joy regardless of the circumstances. They were to rejoice always. You know, Depending on how we understand joy, we might wonder a little bit, and I just want to point this out, might wonder a little bit whether this command to rejoice always contradicts with some other portions of Scripture. This is something I thought about this week. This week wasn't all riding highs and and success stories. This week contained a lot of sad things and broken things and tragic things as well. And so as I'm working through how I'm gonna explain rejoice always, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, well, I'm getting hit in the face with some things here, and I wanna be able to stand up here with integrity and talk to you about this. And so we might wonder how an exhortation like rejoice always fits with the rest of Scripture. The many Psalms of lament, for instance, The Martha Bible study, Thursday, went through a lesson. We're talking about the Psalms of lament and the movement of those Psalms. The Psalms of lament are real. They are given to us for a reason. Does this command in the New Testament to rejoice always supersede those Psalms and and kind of uh, fulfill them in such a way that we shouldn't be um, reading those or taking those to heart anymore? Are we here with this command to rejoice always, forbidden to do any grieving or mourning? Because if that's the case, then I'm gonna have to notify the Hendricks family uh, with regards to Saturday and the worship service that we're gonna have to remember Rich's life. Well, given all his words earlier in this letter about grief and hope, Paul absolutely cannot mean that grief is contrary to God's will. And after all, we read in the Gospels, Jesus himself wept, right? So Paul likely means that in the end, in the end, our joy in Jesus Christ will overcome all of our sorrow, and we are to remember that even now. Can you see how that is consistent with the rest of Scripture? That we remember, that we understand, that we never forget that in the end, our joy in Jesus Christ will overcome all of our sorrows. Yes. We can think about it that way. And actually, that's a great encouragement as we are going through grieving and mourning that in Jesus Christ, one day, one day, There will be no reason, no reason to grieve or mourn ever again. Uh, He will wipe away the tear from every eye. Uh, So back to these early Christians. Um, Leon Morris, again, characterizes them in this way. They thought more of their Lord than of their difficulties, more of their spiritual riches in Christ than of their poverty on earth, and more of the glorious future when Christ would come than of their unhappy past. A good lesson for us. And you know, one of the practical means God has given to us to cope with our grief and sorrow when it's warranted in this world is the command or the the gift of prayer and so the command to rejoice always is immediately followed by the command to pray continually once again that universal continually is what makes the command seem so difficult <clears throat> i mean how could we how could we engage in prayer when we are Called upon to do so many other necessary things that demand all our attention. I mean, I'm terrible at multitasking as it is. I can do one thing at a time. That's all I can do. I can only concentrate on one thing. How am I supposed to do what I need to do throughout the day and also be praying while I do it? It just seems impossible. But I suppose that the answer to this and how we reconcile this with the rest of Scripture lies in how we understand or think about prayer. Is prayer an occasion, an event? Is it a practice that demands our undivided attention? Or is prayer, as Paul speaks about it here, more of an attitude toward God that permeates all of our life and all of our activity. Now, I think that it's obvious that Paul has our overall attitude in mind here. What he's calling us to is always to live with a sense of fellowship with God and, and to have a perpetual awareness of his presence, to realize that God is And this is such a wonderful blessing that we take so much for granted that God is always immediately accessible to us. He is right there. We utter a word, we utter a thought. I don't know if you can utter a thought. You can think a thought. And he knows. He gets it right away. I mean, what a great gift. And so I think that that's more how we should think about it, living with a constant awareness of God's presence, of his imminence, right there Brother Lawrence, an early Christian writer, put it well. He spoke of practicing the presence of God. Now, on occasion, that prayerful attitude is going to manifest itself in specific thoughts and words and gestures that would be considered formal prayer as we think about prayer. But what Paul is commanding is that we must always continually have an attitude of dependence and gratitude. That is what it means to pray continually. So then, it is quite that Paul's next command has to do with giving thanks in all circumstances. We simply cannot pray continually unless we can give thanks in all circumstances. But that said, we must understand this too a bit carefully. God does not want us necessarily to give thanks for all circumstances because that would mean giving thanks for sin and suffering and death, which we know are contrary to his will. God does want us to give thanks in all circumstances. And how can we possibly do that? only if we genuinely believe that God works all things for our good. We get that from Romans eight twenty eight. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. The only way we can believe that promise while enduring the tragedies of human existence is in Jesus Christ. That is, in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We are capable of giving thanks in all circumstances only if we believe that Jesus proves God's commitment to turn even our worst experiences into what is ultimately best for us. Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. This recipe for waiting well seems quite daunting to myself. And Paul has even more to add to it, actually. Although his statement about this being God's will clearly points back to those three commands, I think it's obvious that what follows is also God's will for our lives, and I just want to take those quickly as well. We are warned not to, to put out the fire of the Holy Spirit Now, that's how a lot of translations translate it. Put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of an interesting translation because that's not really in the original Greek. Literally translated, Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not stifle the Spirit, suffocate the Spirit. Obstruct the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, it occurred to me that It's very possible that the Thessalonians had the the very opposite problem that the Corinthians had in the Bible. In in Corinth, the the fire of the Holy Spirit was in danger of burning out of control. Uh, In Thessalonica, the congregation was in danger of controlling things so strictly that the, the fire of the Spirit was being extinguished. Whereas in Corinth, the, the, the spirits and the gifts of the spirit were being used too freely. In Thessalonica, those gifts were being treated with contempt. And so it's clear that Paul wants our worship and our lives to be deeply spiritual. I mean, he doesn't doesn't want our lives to be characterized just by strict religious observance. Just be here twice a week and and do this, 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 and this, and you're good. No, he wants wants this to be a relationship. He wants this to be a a life of the spirituality that we have been gifted with by God. doesn't mean that Paul wants us to be governed by an anything-goes spirit. Because Paul immediately says then, test everything and and hold on to what is good and avoid every kind of evil. And notice again, the universals Paul uses, it's kind of all or nothing with Paul. He says everything, he says every, test everything, avoid every kind of evil. Paul was not at all into relativism. In our spiritual freedom, we are to test every practice, every truth claim, every ethical norm... We are to test these things the way that a metal is tested. Actually, the Greek word used there is a technical term for metallurgy. And so we know that that's precisely what it is being likened to, the process of purifying metals using intense heat. Staying true to the metaphor then, Christians are called to live lives of discernment in a world full of fool's golds. And so then, here is God's recipe for waiting well as we wait for Jesus to return. This is God's will for his Advent people. In a world that mindlessly shouts, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, we are to rejoice always. In a world that is filled with endless sights and sounds of advertising, we are to pray continually. In a world that never seems to find any kind of meaningful contentment, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. In a world that in many ways has quenched the true spirit of Christmas, we must not quench the Holy Spirit who gives gifts to be used and fruit to be displayed in this lost world. That is what God desires of us in this Advent season as we wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an imposing list of commands, as I said. And so I thank God for these next words. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. As I said before, that is what I would consider the wish or the prayer or the blessing that Paul uh, bestows upon these believers and to us. The grace-filled truth of the matter is that the God who calls us to do his will is the very God who enables us to do his will. And that is where I find the grace and the gospel in this text. Paul uses some very interesting words to describe the full extent of God's sanctifying work. Through and through is the Greek holoteles. Holo means whole and teles means end. And that idea is that God will sanctify us entirely and to full completion. He will make every part of us holy, even blameless, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, whatever else we can expect at the second coming of Christ, we can expect to be found completely holy because of what? God's work in us. That is God's advent blessing to a world that is always pursuing all sorts of other things. God promises to fulfill your longing to be holy. And in fact, that is precisely what Paul affirms next, that God will do it. God will fulfill his own advent will for your lives by doing the very thing that he wants done in us. And we can be sure that God will accomplish this because the one who has called us into this new transformed life is faithful. Indeed, Paul emphasizes the word faithful to communicate the certainty of this blessing. Look, I mentioned it early in the sermon, God kept every single one of his promises in the first advent of his son. He will keep all of the promises that he's made wrapped up in the second coming of his son as well, including this one about our complete sanctification. Yes, God calls us to do many things that are completely impossible on our own strength, but he also promises that he will enable us to do them perfectly in the end. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen. Let's pray.